This is Le Breakdown with your host Yasser Luati talking to you straight from the Paris Southside Bollywood. Another episode dealing with racism and police brutality. Last episode, I spoke to you about racism and police brutality in France and how blacks and Arabs have been on the forefront of police brutality in France and how that violence left the Bollywood to start targeting white people, which made them now worry about that same violence. I invite you to listen to it on all available channels. It's called Blacks, Arabs, Yellow Vests, French Tales of Police Brutality. Today, I'm honored to receive Tori Russell, who's a mission director for the International Black Freedom Alliance in St. Louis. He's also been a lead organizer during the Ferguson uprising that followed the racist killing of Mike Brown by a white police officer. And he's now on the ground organizing with people in the U.S. again after the killing of George Floyd. Tori, welcome to you. Thanks for having me, brother. So, uh, Tori, the last time we saw each other, we were in the aftermath of the Ferguson uprising. Uh, I don't lie to you that I left uh, St. Louis deeply worried for two reasons. Uh, the, the fading of the movement after a few years, and especially uh, that there was no real political leverage in, that, that emerged following that uprising. And the cost was enormous for African-Americans, because as you know, many of the activists and organizers that were involved with you during the, the uprising of Ferguson, many of them got assassinated. Uh, Tori, could you please bring us back to the Ferguson uprising? remind our listeners what happened, how things evolved, and how the Black Lives Matter became or it has become? Well, um, hmm. um, it seems long ago, and sometimes it seems like it was just yesterday uh, when we were in the streets um, in Ferguson, Missouri. It's a small suburb right outside of St. Louis City. Um, it's actually a nicer part than where I live. I live in the hood in North St. Louis. It's pretty rough. It's, um, people don't know St. Louis is one, it's, uh, the murder capital of the United States of America. It's one of the most dangerous cities in the world, um, between, uh, infant mortality rates and murder. Um, and so, uh, to go from that to the suburbs and hearing that Mike Brown, an 18 year old kid, uh, was killed there, it's kind of shocking. Um, so. What we thought was just, you know, another police killing um, turned into an uprising. And so young people who were disenfranchised by the system, um, who, you know, voting didn't work, um, pr praying didn't work, um, going to church and, and, and playing kumbaya didn't work, and they couldn't play ball or, or, or get a college uh, scholarship out of it. Um, those young people, people that was unemployed, we took to the streets. And so for days on end, uh, we demanded justice. Uh, we were out in the streets really for 400 days, um, you know, 300 something of which was after the nine indictment of the officer who killed him. And from there, uh, we believe uh, that a movement was started. Um, but, you know, as, as, as we say, in Ferguson, uh, there's two movements. There's a radical black one that's in the tradition of the Panthers and Malcolm X and Marcus Garvey and others like that. And then um, there's a more uh, pacifist or lighter movement like the Black Lives Matter or the Civil Rights Movement um, or things that's really not trying to change the system, that's trying to reform it. I would rather have a new system than try to reform an old one that's innately just insidious, just horrible to black people. So, I thank you for this introduction, but could you please delve a little bit more on what were the limits shown by what you call the, the model followed by uh, some organizers, even though Black Lives Matter is still a rallying cry around, around the world, and I can speak for France, for example. But politically speaking, we saw some um, people getting elected on the platform that emerged the post, the Ferguson uprising, and don't you think, why don't you think that the election of such people uh, is a sign of hope for, for the future? Um, I was myself um, in St. Louis when I met with, um, with the prosecutor, Kim Gardner, 
which seemed very promising, and I honestly you know, was impressed by her courage in the face of all the institutional leverage trying to kind of block her from bringing reform to the criminal justice system. But it's not clear whether the individuals are themselves uh, reaching their own personal limits or they come in with a, or they, get, they get elected on a platform, but the system in front of us is way too strong so far. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, you know, Kim Gardner, uh, the prosecutor for the same old city, uh, first black woman elected. Uh, I think, like you said, I mean, it's the most courageous human being I've seen in the face of um, police who weren't being shot with tear gas or pepper spray. Um, she went to the system um, trying to be fair and just for all, and she actually doing it, and she's applying it to the police. Um, there's a hundreds of officers who are on a ban list, basically dirty cops that she's identified with being racist or planting drugs on people or sending people to jail. Um, and a lot of their cases have been overturned and people have come home from jail. Um, but we have to be really, really careful by judging a movement um, by electoral politics and really um, judging them by individualism. Um, and so if one person or two people or five or even 20 people get into the system, it doesn't mean that the masses of the people's needs are being met. And so uh, we see that with like a Wesley Bell, who was a Ferguson uh, resident. He ran on the Ferguson kind of criminal justice reform policy, became a city council member, and now he's the prosecutor in the county. Um, but yet and still, he has not uh, looked into or brought a case against the officer to kill Michael Brown, which he still legally can't. Um, there's been a shooting every month since he's been the prosecutor. Um, no officers have been indicted. Um, just as recently, um, as uh, this week, he indicted uh, a black woman and her son around a TV that may or may not be stolen. Um, even though video footage showed up of them being beating, beaten by the De Pere, uh Police Department on video. And so what we're seeing the time and time again, be it him or Ella Jones, who became the first mayor, first black person to be the mayor in Ferguson now, uh, individualism is not the, the antidote to, to white systemic racism. Um, we, we, we can't judge it by that. We have to judge about, you know, the, the grocery store. Um, do people have food in the cupboard? Um, do we have an adequate job that pays us an adequate uh, uh, amount of wage? Uh, are our kids happy? Are, are our kids uh, going to a quality school? Can we afford higher education? Those are the things that we should judge it on. So since Ferguson, what is still wrong with uh, St. Louis and the smaller towns around it? Um, the police is still going to be the police. The police are slave catchers for black people. So uh, we're still getting pulled over. Uh, we're still getting fines, uh, which takes away our ability to drive. In the U.S., you know, you get a you get a ticket. They can give you a $50, $100 ticket. It can go up to $1,000, $2,000. You can spend weeks in jail. Those things still go on, um, just like they did on Obama. They're going on under Trump. And so if the policing is not changing, and that's the first barrier between the people uprising and overthrowing the government or changing the government, um, and the police are still as strong, then, you know, how strong is a movement? So if the police is a barrier, as you say, between the people and let's say, you know, the rest of the country or institutions, uh, what are politicians saying? The people in place, when you bring this up, like they can't remain quiet after the Ferguson uprisings with the international outcry. You know, what are the elected officials doing? You know, I'm not talking about the new ones who were elected on the Ferguson platform. I'm talking about the people in place who can uh, use some you know, pressure or allocate resources to kind of either uh, bring about some minimal change, but still give a sign that they are doing something? Or this analysis is completely negative on it, saying that we have had the uprising and people get killed, and we are still in the same situation as we were 10 years ago. Um, the young and new ones are doing the same thing that the old ones are doing, um, nothing. And so we have no new policy around policing. 
Um, our police don't wear body cameras. We don't have a civilian oversight board where the citizens can look into the cases. It's really much of nothing. Uh, we just had this conversation with a, 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 a young elected official in Oldman. You know, uh, the policymakers are not making policy that reflects the protests. And so now the organizers and the protesters have to be politicians, organizers, community service providers, medics. Um, you know, we, we basically have to juggle all positions um, because our elected officials, I, I guess, don't care about black people. What message do you send to the St. Louis area post-Ferguson, but especially post the racist killing of George Floyd? Do you think this can spark something new, bring new, uh, give momentum towards it being kind of waning with time, which is absolutely normal? What message do you send to the St. Louis area for the people who are like now, of course, identifying with what happened in Minneapolis? Um, you know, uh, I, I think that what we're seeing is new energy. Um, people who probably always wanted to come out are actually now coming outside, um, being in the streets and being disruptive. Um, I think a big conversation we're having is, is around peaceful protesting. Um, me, myself, there, to me, there's no such thing as a peaceful protest. Um, the point of a protest is to disturb the peace. And so when we say no justice, no peace, um, you can't do that peacefully. And so um, we have to just have mass political education, sometimes right there in the streets and right in front of riot cops. And so that's the most important thing, that we build a, a movement this time built on political education with one goal, one agenda, um, in a corny way, one band one sound, you know, <laughs> if we all playing the same song together, uh, we all dance together in the end. Uh, you know, I quite identify with what you're saying because we are you know, facing the, the exact same limits in France, meaning that we have a tragic event which sparks mm -hmm. anger and people take it to the street and then express, you know, their feelings. But unfortunately, that momentum you gain following a tragic event, you know, is not given a structural, how can I say, uh, duration. 
or is not giving foundations for it to last beyond the emotional uh, moment. And, and, and I do agree with you that political education cannot be bypassed. It is fundamental. You cannot mobilize, organize people who are insensitive to what's happening mm. around them and, and to make things even worse, adhere to the idea that through individualism, by putting themselves through the bootstrap, they're going to make it on their own. Uh, I remember speaking with uh, Zahir Ali in, uh, in Brooklyn on that, and he said something quite interesting. He said, capitalism has this capacity of still making you believe in the dream of personal success that, that you know, despite all the flaws of capitalism, you still have a chance if you keep working hard. Mm -hmm. um, here, for example, with the, the, uh, the post-colonial immigration in France, which came from Africa, there is a huge problem of you know, organizing because uh, you get this momentum for some time, but you know, it does not last. And then what comes around, what's waiting for you around the corner is uh, political parties and white majority organizations to kind of you know, grab these you know, uh, movements, turn them into something more, how can I say, uh, less radical that adhere to the system and kind of buy in to the rhetoric of in France uh, the Republic and that, you know, institutions are literally the way to, uh, uh, are literally the, the leverages to use for liberation. Now, why, I mean, like, of course, people can refer to the Black Panther Party and to the radical movements. And of course, the Black radical tradition, you know, is a school of education for at least many of us in France, and me, me being the, one, one of them. What's keeping uh, this political education from being accomplished on the ground, even if it means like once a week, or is it a question of resources? Is it a question of interest? Is it a question of sabotage by the institutions? What, you know, what do you see as being the limit for this, uh, from this of being applied? Um, I, I, I do think that one part of it is, is, is uh, like you said, it's sensationalized because we see the Panthers. And so uh, when you see uh, some cool people, uh, you see some beautiful women with some beautiful afros and some black berets and some black leather pants and jackets uh, with a fist up in history, it makes you think that that's the extent of it. Um, but you forget about the six weeks of political education that you had to have to become a, a Panther that represents the community. Um, you couldn't walk around with a gun without training. And so those are the things that I think um, we are missing. And I think that's an interest part, but I also, we all know, man, you know, movements um, are sustained through resources. And so be it even if it's somebody sharing information and knowledge, and there has to be a building to do it. It has to be, even if, even if we sharing PDF files and toolkits, you gotta have some Wi-Fi and some electricity and that gotta be paid for. And so I really wish that the athletes and entertainers uh, would stop tweeting and stop posting. Um, or if you can do that, can you match that with some funds um, to get the protesters out of jail, to build freedom schools, um, and really have the resources to go back into the community. So not only can we learn how to do something but we can apply it in the communities that we live what do you make of don lemon's plea live on cnn towards black celebrities athletes you know movie stars entertainers etc what do I you mean, make I, of that? I think don lemon saying the same thing that grassroots organizers saying now and then saying uh, we need resources um, but I think the difference or the, or the, or the, the part, uh, the, in, the, the intricate part that's really needed, right, um, is, is you can't say that movements need to be funded without identifying where the funding should go. And so that lets me know Don Lemon is saying that a movement needs to be funded, but he, don't, he doesn't know what it is, what it looks like, who's in it, who's the leadership, where, what, what pot, what name does it go by. And so... If he is a so-called black journalist on mainstream media and he's on your nightly news and he can't identify it or he's not willing to name it, right? Then how can a Jay-Z or a Talib Kweli or Ice Cube name it, right? How can a Kaepernick fund it um, if no one could name it and see it? And so I think the problem is, is like um, we exist um, we're not visible intentionally because the mainstream media would say that I'm too radical or others are too radical. 
Um, but how do you how do you sustain a radical movement or a movement that's going to radically change society? Um, if you can't name it, smell it, walk up on it, see what it built and fund it. I do agree with you that in, I mean, like in our case in France, it's even worse. Uh, I remember speaking with a uh, the manager of a famous uh, hip hop artist who's like, he's just, honestly, he's a very decent brother. You know, very like, you know, legit. And, you know, I have nothing to say about, about him. Uh, I spoke to his uh, man, manager and he expressed his, his fear that uh, there are two things that they start funding people and those people mess, mess things up and expose them to, for example, liabilities. And as artists in France, I mean, like, unlike in the US, I mean, like my criticism of, of modern day hip hop, you know, I'm, maybe I make a show one day on it, but uh, is that, you know, black and Arab artists in the industry in, in France have zero independence. So we don't own any uh, radios, we don't own any distribution uh, channels, we don't own any, like there are some media outlets, but in the end the funding is coming from, st you know, stakeholders who are out of the, from out of the community. <laughs> And the, the view expressed by this um, manager was that there are two things that sometimes we fund the people and the, the money starts going elsewhere or the people we fund start taking highly problematic uh, positions in public and compromising the artist okay, and uh, whatever support he's bringing. So do you think that's something you can relate to or that's that should be that, that could be something you know specific to france uh I, I i i think that's a coward's answer um to to somebody not willing to get their fingernails dirty um yeah there's a, a record labor i'll say this um any artist um if you get booked for a show on a tour how does the first person who book you don't know if you're going to show up and give a good show, but they take a chance on you. And so that's the, that the problem is they don't want to take a chance on somebody else the way that someone taking a chance on them. And so I just think that's a cowardice answer. Um, you know, they blow money on bottles, women, cars, jewelry. Um, sometimes they put money in studio time for an artist who will never produce an album. And so, uh, you know, um, or what, what, what did Jay-Z say? What's 50 grand to a nigga like me? Can you please remind me? And so if you got 50 grand to throw out in the club on bottles of Ace of Spades, I know you got, I know you can make it rain on a movement. My next question, uh, Tori, is on how does, like, of course, like the answer is obvious, but I want you to give the analysis on how you people connect what happened in Ferguson five years ago and what's happening today in Minneapolis. Why today it gained national momentum, all right, you know, and grew bigger than what happened in Ferguson? Um, bigger, faster, stronger. I think, you know, you watch the game evolve, it be a basketball or um, football, um, and you see it evolve. Um, everybody's getting bigger, faster, stronger, and I think the protests in Minneapolis um, took the lessons from Ferguson, um, and they one-upped it. And so uh, we know that without mass disruption and even without property damage, no one no one cares. We, we know that. If nothing's on fire, the media doesn't come. You know, the media likes protest porn. You know, they, they're coming for their money shot. And the money shot is something on fire, a highway shut down, uh, somebody screaming in a police officer's face. And so I think they take that, um, they took that example and ran with it, but they're more strategic. I got to, you know, hats off to them. You know, I just left there. So, you know, they're using police scanners. They're using walkie-talkies. Um, they're communicating. They're on bikes, you know. It's, they, they have thousands here, and then another thousand hit another spot. Um, they're not just having a 10,000, uh, 15,000 K people marching down the street. You know, uh, we laugh and say a peaceful, a protest that's too peaceful is a parade. And so they're not having yeah. parades down the yeah. street, right? Yeah. They are, they burn down the police station. I'm not um, going to give my opinion on that. 
Yeah, yeah. Don't. I don't, and I, I don't I want to be I held. Didn't, I didn't give mine either. I'm just, I'm just reporting the facts, sir. I didn't say I was there. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate you reporting the facts, and let's stick to it. Uh, uh, so for me, it's like this, man. I think no matter what, I've seen them do rallies and all those things. They encompassing so many things, and it's so powerful. I think the most strategic thing that we all have to do is learn from each other, share our ideas, and work together. Um, moving forward uh, to actually build a movement the right way and build one that's not only um, national but international. Um, and so if the people, um, you know, in, in Paris and northern Paris or in Tottenham and in London know the names of Michael Brown and George Floyd and Sandra Bland, why don't we know the names? And so those are the things that we have to share over the uh, from continent to continent over the oceans and seas. And that's the criticism I made uh, multiple times, you know, both in, in uh, LA. You know, when I went to, to meet you in St. Louis, I mean, like we are on the same, you know, frequency in terms of the need for internationalism. But, you know, myself having went to school, having been to school, excuse me, um, in Texas and seeing all of the limits of, you know, the American mindset on international affairs, it is true that, you know, internationalism has been abandoned and the only people we hear speaking about it is a few organizers like yourself from, who are descendants of the black radical tradition, but most important, most predominantly, it's white organizations. Uh -huh. The Communist Party and Progressive Party and, you know, and sometimes these radical leftists, etc. But we don't see these connections across the Atlantic. As a matter of fact, in 2017, uh, there was this coordination against racism and the state brutality that for the first time brought together organizers from the US, the United Kingdom and France. And we all went together to uh, the OSCE, which is the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, like a small UN, a 56 member state organization. And that platform allows you to call out your government in front of the ambassador. You're not talking about and like you know, a, a small like you know chief in no, no, you're talking about an, the ambassador, the official ambassador of member states, and that was done once, but it didn't get enough momentum because unfortunately many Americans kind of think, and I'm sorry for for saying it quite bluntly, but uh, many people in the U.S. think that the world ends at the east and the west coast, and that there's nothing <laughs> and that there is nothing beyond that, and that's unfortunate because. The experiences are the same. You see that governments work together. We saw it with counterterrorism measures. We saw it with mass surveillance. We saw it with how to crush uh, social movements. We saw it with wars abroad. And for human rights activists, uh, for, or for any segment, it's become a problem because we reach some limits and we deprive ourselves of you know, highly valuable resources. You know, when, you, when you take your case internationally, I mean, it's, a, it's one thing to quote Malcolm X, may he rest in peace, when he exposed the U.S. in the midst of the Cold War and threatened to go to the U.N. To, to call out America and even African nations who didn't say a word about what was happening in the U.S. Yeah, it's one thing to quote Malcolm X, but, you know, we have to you know, carry that example and apply it in today, the 21st century. Uh, what's your take today? You, know, you said something like a few days ago. Uh, it's the Arab, the Arab Spring here. And why do you compare the Arab Spring with what's happening right now in the U.S.? Um, it's a complete upheaval. Uh, and to the point where in which people are, 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 are mobilized in, in an organic way. And it's really the majority of the population. And so uh, it's anti-government. Um, it's anti-imperialism. It's anti-oppression. And so if the oppressors are working internationally together, uh, why aren't the oppressed working internationally together? Uh, why aren't we holding conferences on our own? If, if the OSC is not holding one, um, then we should be holding one in London. And, 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 and we should go to Australia and listen to uh, what our Aboriginal brothers and sisters are going through. We should go to... Uh, Northern Africa, we should go to the Congo, we should have one everywhere that we can and listen to the story so we can all get on one accord. The beast uh, of white supremacy is doing to us the same things everywhere, but we just don't know it and we're not strategizing. And so I think, like you said, 
2014 during the Ferguson uprising, um, some of us did go to the UN and, and, and testify. Um, our plan in our organization, the IBFA, is to go back to the UN for one last time and then move out, um, hopefully, to get a seat on the African Union. Those are our plans. We have to move beyond um, the UN if the UN is not listening, because we know it's funded by the US. Um, but we have to find international allies, um, be it nation states, uh, be it Korea, be it Cuba, be it Venezuela, or, um, whoever's sympathetic to the black cause, to the oppressed cause. Um, that's That should be our friends in the movement. I'm going to ask a question that's going to maybe steer controversy in the white progressive uh, movement. Uh, what so called progressive. <laughs> so, <laughs> indeed, uh, many of them indeed have a blind spot when it comes to race. And mm -hmm. uh, again, I, I draw it from my own experience in France. Uh, leftists have, you know, the question of race is highly problematic for them. And they, when they adhere to it, it's in a condescendent way, in a very paternalistic way. But they don't necessarily believe or internalize the idea that they are privileged people because they are white. And many of them, especially for the radical left in France, is only a class struggle. And right. if you bring the racial question, you are dividing you know, the working class. You know, you know, you know, you know the, the, um, the song. Yeah. Now, my question is on uh, what limits has Bernie Sanders shown? Oh my God. If looked at from your perspective, and the expectations of many grassroots, you know, activists, the communities who kind of were asked to believe that elect electoral politics through Bernie Sanders was a way forward. Um, uh, I, I think everybody at first had a little Bernie um, Kool-Aid. Um, it was sweet. It was something different. Uh, somebody talking about economic justice and, and, and the ways in which um, why my check is short and about housing being a human right. Um, but it's recently, um, I believe, is is this week, uh, Bernie Sanders um, let me know that the only color he probably sees is green. Um, is is he made a statement? Uh, is 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 just it's off color and, and short sighted, and it helps white supremacy. He made a statement saying that if they paid the officers more, maybe they would be less racist. Um, You've got to be kidding me. No, I'm not. And so um, yeah, I, I, I send you the document and we, we, we all laughed and then we burned it in a bonfire um, because it's complete, it's, it's, it's lunacy. And so uh, for, for all the good things that he talks about economically, um, my question for the leftists, for the socialists, for the Marxists, the Gromskys and Trotskyites and whatever fabric of, of, of erasing me as a black person is is um what uh if i'm forever if my class is determined by my race i'm forever the precarious worker um do you care about me before i clock in and after i clock in is my point and so there's no union for me um if i live in a in a building where housing discrimination is the norm if the bank won't loan to me because i'm black how does that affect me economically? And where will my Marxist, leftist, socialist brothers and sisters be? Um, but how does that apply to Bernie Sanders, even though like, he challenged the so-called democratic establishment, which he did until the North Carolina primaries? But he, many blamed him for throwing in the towel too soon. And I, don't think he, I don't think he threw in the towel too soon. Uh, I saw an 80-something-year-old man who couldn't couldn't get a tenth of the black vote um, in the South? Um, he couldn't get the black vote because he 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 didn't know nothing about police police brutality. He but knows nothing. He knows nothing about the system of white supremacy. But how come so that Joe how Biden did then? No, and so what I'm saying is is uh, uh, he he didn't even have enough sense to even go find a Negro to pay to even vouch for him he, he you know and that's i think like you said that's our so-called uh i call it it's a to me it's a joke it's a so-called liberal so-called progressive so-called person who says that they see me and understand me and my plight um but that's in that's that's just rhetoric 
And so uh, the same way that the, uh, the Russian Revolution had a problem um, with blacks in Russia, um, where they wanted to put them out and said that the race question was too heavy and that we need to stay on economics and, and industries and producing. Um, it's the same way that Bernie said to, to the black voters and saying is that race and reparations is too much. We need to just worry about Trump and getting him out. That's insufficient for black voters. Yeah, but the legitimate question that your answer brings is how is Joe Biden any better? You know, how has Joe Biden, who is notoriously like, you know, you ain't black. I mean, I couldn't, I had to kind of Google it myself and make sure that it wasn't a fake something like, more like, yeah, it's not, it's real. Look, I didn't believe it. I mean, like, I saw it on my timeline. I was like, no, this, this would be a fake thing. And then it was actually true. But if, if this is your, the criticism you address to Bernie Sanders, his lack of sensitivity to the racial question and the plight of, of the black community in America, how is Joe Biden any better? Because he did secure the black vote from the North Carolina primaries and the next ones. Yeah, I, I think if we look in at statistics, I think we've never seen more black people vote. Though the two highest time is um, President Obama, of course, um, black people voting for him. Um, and 68, which is the first time black people could vote for the president. Outside of that, um, nearly 50% of black people in the United States of America never votes, never vote. Almost half of us never vote. And so Joe Biden may, uh, he may convince older voters, church voters, um, people who are working, but the, the majority of us who've been in jail, been in prison, parole, probation, um, on public housing, um, trying to make it day to day, they're not convincing us. And so what we saw was um, the lesser of two evils on the Democratic side wasn't strong enough to beat Trump, be it Biden, um, be it Hillary Clinton. And so we don't give anybody a pass. I think with Bernie, you saw hope. And so you saw more criticism, hoping that he would change his colors um, or change his stripes. He did not. And so I, what we're seeing out of Biden is nothing. I think the majority of the young people that are in the streets are turned away from that a long time ago. Um, I'm predicting a big loss for the Democrats in 2020. It's probably be another term for Trump. Uh, Barack Obama spoke out uh, just last night. Uh, yeah. We are recording this, you know, the very next day of his uh, taking uh, a public stance on what's happening in the U.S. Uh, What's your take on Obama's uh, speech? First, on the fact that a president or former president is speaking up publicly against a sitting president. I think that sets a precedent. And what do you make of that? And the second question is, what do you make of the, the, the content of his uh, you know, speech of uh, yesterday? Um, I, I think he made great points you know i think we have to one say that obama you know he was a community organizer Indeed, and yes. so he, uh, yeah he understands the power of of talking to people meeting people where they are uh highlighting the contradiction showing where trump is bad showing the economy i think i think those are great things if 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 obama was only a community organizer he killed it last night um, but he's not. He's a former sitting president, a two-term president who had the majority for two years and did nothing for black people. And so he's talking as if he's me, like he's a Ferguson frontliner, um, as if he was a protester in Baltimore, Chicago. He's not that. He's a person um, who deported more people than anyone else in the history of the United States. He, he drone, he, you know, dropped drones on people. He, uh, I mean, he gave less amount of small business loans to black people than George Bush. Um, he cut the funding to HBCU. So, I mean, he's not pro-black. He doesn't have a black agenda. Uh, I, you know, I'm telling him to shut the hell up. You know, uh, I, was li I was done listening to him um, when his Department of Justice had no federal charges of hate crimes against uh, Darren Wilson, the killer of Mike Brown Jr. Um, I really wish that he and uh, Michelle would just go to Martha's Vineyard um, and live out their life waiting on their grandchildren, spending the tens of millions of dollars they get from writing books.
What's the way forward, according to you, Tori, from this day on, given the situation in the U.S.? Um, I don't hide to you that I'm kind of worried for the people I love in the U.S. when you have the sitting... I love you too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, brother. Uh, you didn't have to say it in public, man. Come on, it's got to be more... <laughs> Man, these are troubling times. Yeah, so man, you know, they just they just picked up a Ferguson protester who just got back from Minneapolis. And I want to go back to that. Yeah. Sorry, I want to go back to the people who were killed in the aftermath of the Ferguson uprising. Like three, four years down the road, uh, the people who were identified in pictures in the media were found in horrible conditions. And that made me call you, remember, ask, you know, what's going on. So can you please remind our listeners in the U.S. and the ones listening from outside of the U.S. what happened to many of the activists you organized with that you personally met and know of? Um, I mean, so the first one is to be ex uh, ex expected. Um, most of them quit. Um, they got burned out. They just couldn't take the pressure. The second ones, um, they got sold out. Um, they took a Uh, internship at Harvard, there's somewhere else not being in, in, in the class struggle, not being in the community, the black community. The third is probably the most gruesome. Um, they either put in dead in jail. And so um, be it Darren Seals, probably the most vocal, uh, most known of them. Uh, he was very vocal. He was silenced by Black Lives Matter. A lot of black women and feminists attacked him for his rhetoric. But now we're seeing that Black Lives Matter Um, it's not the, it's black and not as anti-capitalism as, 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 as they thought. Um, and he was killed, shot in the head and burned in his car. Um, Edward Crawford, who we all know famously as Skeeter, the guy who threw back the tear gas, he was also yeah. shot and killed in his car. Yeah, Edward Crawford um, with, with the famous, you know, yeah, shirt with the American flag. Yeah. 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 And it's amazing. Uh, Danye Jones, uh, Melissa McKinney, a Ferguson protester, her son was found hung, um, lynched in her backyard when she came home uh, after a protest. Um, probably the most person that I think a lot of people forget is that a lot of reason that people going to protest with their phone sideways um, Uh, recording this because of Bass of Massery, a Palestinian uh, who was deeply rooted and deeply connected to the black struggle in Ferguson. Um, he was found uh, overdosed on a public bus. Um, I, to the life of me, I just can't understand it. And those are just four of the six, seven names that's locally in Ferguson. You have other brothers from Baltimore, Philly, Detroit. And other brothers who are locked up, like Josh Williams, um, he's locked up for burning a piece of plastic. They gave him seven years, like he was a you know arsonist. And so, yeah, man, it's it's a struggle. Um, now they're picking up people like Mike Avery, a local protester. He just got back from Minneapolis. Marvin, it's it's a lot of them. The list goes on and on. And so we have to be careful. Um, be it Obama, be it Trump, or whoever's in office. Um, black people rising up um, has always been um, something that the government hates from that turn to now. Does it make any difference that Donald Trump is, th is threatening to send in the military? Or to you, it's like, it's like repression is repression, whether it's through the hands of the police or uh, the military. Do you we, see was just having, that? we was just having this discussion in our core group. Um, a political education director, we was having this, you know, real stark debate. Um, Dr. Travis was saying, you know, maybe it is, maybe it's not. I'm saying, you know, hey, I, I think this person is uh, probably the most meanest, cruelest president that ever in the history of America. He's definitely willing to do whatever to us. And so we have to be prepared for that. But I think that the question is, what is the people prepared to do? Um, the people don't have a Trump. You know, we thought Obama would be our Trump, somebody who was unwavering love for black people. They didn't have that. So what we have to do is our people, we have to go out in the streets and we have to be diligent. We have to be strategic as well, because this president will probably maybe even possibly drop a bomb on protesters. Um, I think in Louisville, two protesters were killed. We had a protester killed here um, just last year, uh, last week. 
Um, I think 10 total protesters in the last week around the George Floyd um, protests have been killed at the protest under President Trump. What call do you That's make well. to uh, organizers like yourself around the country? What plea do you make as we are expecting repression to be uh, worse than it has been so far? And what call do you make to the broader community? Uh, there is a um, Hassan Minaj on, uh, on his show who called Asians to support uh, the black liberation struggle. And he said, this is a crime scene. We can no longer remain silent. But your personal call for me, you are sitting. What do you say and what do you ask for? If people could hear, could hear you in, nationally in the US, And the third one, what call do you make to an international audience to people who identify with what's happening in the U.S.? Um, one, I, I, I want to say I'm not, I'm not a rarity or anomaly. Um, there are those of us who are in this black struggle in the United States of America who have always thought about the connections from Ferguson to the Francophone. And so we want to first and foremost say that we are connected. Um, we see ourselves in one, uh, one movement. And so we just need to, to come together. And so if that's sharing resources, that's fine. If that's sharing awareness and, and, and creating hashtags and mobilizing together, I think that's a key, key element for, to creating a movement. Um, but more importantly, we have to be diligent in having one plan and one vision. Uh, we want to take this Black Lives Matter movement um, to a Black liberation movement and make it a global movement Uh, for black liberation. And so if that means black people going back home to Africa, building it up, if that means sending money, um, if that means supporting political parties such as the EFF and other places, um, so be it. We have to be strategic and we don't have the rest of our lives. I don't want to be 50, 67. I know offense to Angela Davis or any of the elders. I don't want to be an old person that you trot around to tell me about how bad it is now, how bad it was then. I want to be free at that age and I want to use all my time. And like, I hope everyone else is doing, using your time to organize your community beyond a protest, um, teach people how to grow food, um, teach how to teach people about energy, um, cars, how to have cooperative economics, uh, things that are non-oppressive in economies and how we build up a movement, even if we just got to put out a few dollars, five, ten dollars in a pot every month and, and pass it around the world until we all get free. That's our plan. That's our strategy. Thank you for this very inspiring call, uh, Tori. I know that you're right now you know, supporting the demonstrations and organizing on your side. I have to send you my admiration from here in Paris and my total support. Uh, God knows what would have been doing myself if I were in the U.S. and experienced <laughs> that. Uh, Tori, uh, I remind our listener that you're the mission director at the International Black Freedom Alliance. You've been uh, the, one of the lead organizers during the Ferguson uprisings that followed the racist killing of Mike Brown by a white police officer. I know this struggle is far from over. I know that you've been inspiring people for years and that I don't think you're going to stop today and uh, from Paris I would like to thank you for the time you've been giving me on this podcast as for you listeners I thank you for your time and for listening to this podcast please think of sharing it in the meantime let me thank you again and I will call you to listen to us one more time next week thanks again thank you free Mamiya. <laughs>